The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We are continuing and concluding our study on the afterlife. You know, I've been saying that the scriptures don't tell us much about the afterlife, but somehow we got a three-part series out of it. So I don't know if there's something there if I'm making stuff up. But <laughs> one thing we know that the scriptures affirm that there is an afterlife, and that's, that's pretty important. In Matthew 22, Yeshua says this, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to them by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now this text affirms the reality of an afterlife. And I know we, as Christians, we all believe in the afterlife. We don't know much about it, but we believe there is one. Because Yahweh here refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, thus speaking of the patriarchs, not as dead men, but as those who are alive. Now, if God spoke of dead men as though they were alive, then this implied these men are going to live again. They'd rise from the dead. So we see from this passage that Yeshua affirms the fact of an afterlife. Now, in this text, Yeshua tells us that in the afterlife, we will be like angels, like angels in heaven, he says. Now, we've been looking at this for the last couple weeks, and I've been stressing the fact that angels have bodies. We've seen this. We looked at Genesis 18, Genesis 19. They had feet that needed to be washed. They ate. They sat. Okay, these are all things you do with a body, all right? We also saw they're supernatural, though. They perform supernatural things. So this body is not the kind of body we have. It's some kind of a supernatural body. We've seen they can be visible or invisible. And they can be visible and invisible at the same time. Right? Know what I'm talking about? Okay, Balaam. He didn't see it. His donkey did. (laughs) Okay? So the donkey's got spiritual insight here, and he sees the angel. Balaam doesn't see it. So obviously this angel's visible and invisible. This is a, a body like nothing we can imagine. Okay? We see many times in Scripture where angels are protecting believers. And we talked about that a little bit last week. You know, guardian angels, and that very well could be. Bless you. Look at what Yahweh says when He created man. In Genesis 1.26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, the, the, the language that's used here, it, God says, let us, and I don't think he's speaking to the Trinity here, he's speaking of the divine council, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, people water these words down and try to make it mean all kinds of stuff, but image and likeness is something, you know what, I, when you say image, you, you see something, you, you have this visual idea. Well, if you do a careful examination of all the passages that use these words, The Hebrew word here, image, is thelem, and likeness is demut. And they convey the idea of an object similar to or representative of something else. 
Not identical, but very similar. And the words image and likeness should not be understood as referring to two different things, but rather as interchangeable terms that reflect the Hebrew form of synonymous parallelism. The New Testament Greek word image, which is akon, conveys virtually the same meaning as the Hebrew. Both languages indicate that God created humans to be similar to Himself. But certainly not identical. Now since we have bodies, I don't think it's hard to believe that Yahweh has one. And we've seen that throughout Scripture. Now someone's bound to ask, well, isn't God invisible? Does the Bible say He's invisible? Yeah, it does. Colossians 1.15 He's the image, speaking of Christ, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn from all creation. So God created humans to be similar to Himself. We are made in His image. And Yeshua manifests the invisible God. The very nature and character of God have been perfectly revealed in Christ. In Him, the invisible becomes visible. We've also seen that angels can be invisible, and yet visible. So to say God is invisible doesn't mean He doesn't have a body or we can't see Him. There's times He can be invisible, there's times He can be manifest. John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God. And I think that is uh, drawn from Exodus 33.20 here. But He said, you cannot see My face, for man cannot see Me and live. Remember, he's talking to Moses. Moses wanted to see the glory of God. He says, I'm going to have to, you can't see the glory. You couldn't handle it, okay? So I'm going to let you see my back parts. And basically, he covers himself up so he can see, I guess, the afterglow. Well, John says, no one has ever seen God. But does that sound right? Does that strike you when you read something like that? I mean, no one's ever seen him? I thought Isaiah said he saw him. Isaiah 6 1, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now, wait a minute. No one has ever seen God. Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of His robe filled the temple. This is a throne room vision here in Isaiah. And Isaiah says he saw the Lord. Now, there are a lot of passages in Scripture that record individuals seeing God. For example, Exodus 24, 9 says, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. Okay, so you got... 74 people here, uh, they went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under His feet. Okay, so when they say they saw God, they're not seeing some glowing light. They're not seeing some cloud. Whatever this thing is, it has feet. That would think that's a body, okay? We saw under His feet, as it were, pavement, a sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. <coughs> Excuse me. And he did not lay his hands on the chief men of the people of Israel, and they beheld God. And they ate and they drank. So let me just say here that whatever anyone sees Yahweh, it is Yahweh the Son, the second person of the Trinity that they see, but the Son clearly reveals the Father. He said, not not, not that anyone has seen the Father, Yeshua says, except... He who is from God, he has seen the Father. So, according to what this says, has anybody ever seen the Father? Well, look what he says in 14.9 of John. Yeshua said to him, 
Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Okay? How can you say, show us the Father? They're asking, hey, we hear God's invisible, show us the Father. He goes, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay? Because we're one. All right? I think Calvin had it right when he said this. When he says that no one has ever seen God, it is not to be understood of the outward seeing of the physical eye. He means that since God dwells in inaccessible light, he cannot be known except in Christ, his living image. So the idea when he says no one's ever seen God, he's talking about the essence, the fullness, the full manifestation of his glory. That's the meaning because over and over in Scripture we see God. And he looks like a man when when you see the images. Of course, it's way beyond that, but he's got a human form. When Yeshua says that in the afterlife, believers are like the angels in heaven, he is saying that we're going to be like the gods. This is, we've talked about this, it's called theosis, it's called deification. We have seen this truth of deification, this stated throughout the scripture. We looked at this text in Genesis 15, 5. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward the heaven. Number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, we've talked about this a lot. The ancients, they viewed stars as deities. A number of early Jewish interpreters of Genesis 15, 5 understood the patriarchal promise of being multiplied as the stars of heaven, not merely as quantitative, but as qualitative, that his seed would become star-like, assuming the life of the gods. In commenting on Genesis 15.5, in Who is the Heir, Philo states this, When the Lord led him outside and said, Look up into heaven and count the stars, if thou canst count their sum. So shall thy seed... Well, does the, does the text say... So, not so many, that is, of equal number to the stars. For he wishes to suggest not number merely, but a multitude of other things, such as tend to happiness, perfect and complete. The seed shall be, he says, as the ethereal sight spread out before him, celestial as that is, full of light, unshadowed, and pure as that is, for night is banished from heaven, and darkness from ether, it shall be the very likeness of the stars. So the promise of Genesis 15.5 for Philo entails being transformed into the very likeness of the stars, participating in this celestial life. Now, we also saw the week before that Daniel talks about believers being like the angels in the afterlife. In Daniel 12.3, talking about the, after the resurrection, he uses astral language to speak of resurrected believers as stars or deities. So Yahweh says, we will be like the gods. In Genesis 15.5, he says, so shall your seed be. They're going to be like the gods. Daniel tells us the same thing. And then Yeshua says, we'll be like the angels. See, they're all just repeating the same thing over and over because we're slow learners. Because of this, the common belief of the Second Temple period was that in the resurrection, we would be like the gods. 
and they believed that the gods had bodies. Now, I believe that Paul also taught this idea of having bodies like the gods. In 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to read a lengthy passage here. Follow along and just, it, this is an interesting text. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the same body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another kind for animals, another kind for birds, another for fish. There's heavenly bodies and there's earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is one kind, and the glory of the earth, earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. I think that's an interesting statement there. We're going to be like the stars, but he says stars, the star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. It is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man was from heaven, as was the man of dust, so also those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, there's a lot of controversy over what this text means and what he's talking about by body. And again, you get a thousand different views on what this, but... What I want to kind of focus on here is I want, to, I want to show you that Paul develops this chapter, I believe, from Deuteronomy chapter 4. Because it helps us understand, if you understand Deuteronomy 4, what he is saying here. This passage in 1 Corinthians focuses on the metaphor for the resurrection, the sowing of the seed, the seed going in the ground, coming up different, the old body versus the new body in the resurrection. And right in the center of that conversation, we have this interesting list of creatures. This comparison between earthly bodies, like terrestrial bodies, that are of the earth, and then celestial bodies. So, he talks about human, animals, birds, and fish. And this, this list, in this order, is only found one other place. It's found in Genesis, but it's not in the same order. It's only found in Deuteronomy 4, in this exact order. So he talks about humans, animals, birds, and fish. And he talks about celestial bodies. He goes, there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. And then he goes, sun, moon, and stars. Those are the heavenly ones. And he separates them, the earthly from the celestial, and he says the sun, moon, and stars. And there's actually a text that follows that same order, and that's Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 20. Now, there's a group of texts throughout Deuteronomy that all refer to these celestial powers as gods over the nations. 
Very important. That's what he's dealing with. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is talking about the resurrection. And by using Deuteronomy, he is showing us that in the resurrection, it's about an actual change of nature. These celestial bodies that Paul is listing are not just inanimate objects. In Jewish cosmology, in the Jewish view of the cosmic order, they are actual creatures. These are beings, and not just beings, but specifically this language of sun, moon, and star is used for the gods over the nations, for the ones who would rule over those nations. And these fleshly creatures, the humans, animals, birds, and fish, are all the first order from Deuteronomy 4, and then the next order is the glorious ones. you got the sun, the moon, and the stars. Now, he says, but the glory of the heavenly is one kind. And what's interesting here, this language is used for the celestial creatures. There's a glory to them. But the second word glory is not even in the text. All right? So the heavenly has glory, the earthly does not. And I think that's what he's trying to stress here. And in verse 42, he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. And these are terms used by Philo and other Jewish writers to describe the gods. They're imperishable. And the Stoics use that language to talk about the pneumatic beings or spirit beings. They're imperishable. So whatever that body's made out of, it's imperishable. Just like those beings are imperishable. Paul is saying that believers are going to be like the gods. This is deification. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul draws from Deuteronomy 4, showing us that in the resurrection, we'll put on the body of the gods. When believers die, we're given a spiritual body as we move into the spiritual realm. A body equipped for that realm. We're going to put on the body of the gods. Now, can we come back and forth between realms? I don't know. The angels do, right? God does. Maybe we'll. Maybe our job will be guarding over certain people or whatever. I don't Hey, watch out for that person. They need a lot of help. And you're just going to take care of things. I don't know. But like I said, I don't believe we're going to be sitting around on a cloud playing a harp in heaven. I think we're going to have a mission. We're going to have jobs to fulfill. We're going to have duties serving the living God. Now, the common belief of the Second Temple period was that in the resurrection, we would be like the gods. And they believed that the gods had bodies. There's actually a considerable amount of literature in terms of ancient texts where the writers talk about what the gods are made of. I mean, they're literally discussing, what are these bodies like? You know, how, you know, Because they appear in bodily form, so they're trying to figure out, what kind of body is this? It, it's invisible, it's visible, it does all these miraculous things. In Paul's day, Gentiles, the Greco-Roman culture, and Jews both believed they all believed that gods had bodies. You know that from the Romans. You know, the, you see these Romans demigods, they all got bodies, right? They were spirit beings, but they interacted with people. And when they did, they took on this form, a physical form. It wasn't flesh and blood like we have, something else. They're made of something superior to flesh and blood. David Litwa has written a book called We Are Being Transformed. Subtitle is Deification in Paul's Soteriology. And he's got a full chapter in this book on the bodies of the gods, both Jewish texts and Greco-Roman texts, just trying to show you what they believed 
about the gods. The Roman gods could be depicted in physical form and often were. And that was because they were thought to actually have this embodiment, this sort of corporeal, particularly especially when they were interacting with humans and dealing with humans' affairs. They'd take the form of a human. They'd have this body. Well, more important than that, what did the Israelites believe about this? Well, Benjamin Summers, in his book called The Bodies of the Gods, shows that the Israelite thinking, and in wider ancient Near Eastern thinking, the gods could exist in more than one form simultaneously. And Summers is big on the idea that the gods were embodied. He has lots of evidence for it, both from the Hebrew Bible and outside ancient Near East and other ancient Eastern religions. Now in the Scriptures, and again, that shouldn't be hard for us to understand because in the Scriptures we see Yahweh embodied. Look at this text in Ezekiel. He says, above the expanse, that word is rakia, and it means dome. Above the dome, over their heads, he's talking about the angels, so over the heads of these angels, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of the throne was the likeness with a human appearance. So Ezekiel sees a human-like figure seated on his throne over the world. And what's interesting is Ezekiel calls him the glory of Yahweh in verse 28. He says, Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard the voice of one speaking. So what I want you to see here is the glory is a human figure, human-like figure seated on the throne. The glory has a form. It's not just a bright light. It's not a Shekinah cloud. It is a, not some formless spirit, some mist. It's a bodily form. Yahweh is seen in a bodily form. And again, that shouldn't surprise us. We see that all through. The watchers, the sons of God are seen to have bodies. So do the angels. And when we leave this earth, I think we receive spiritual bodies fit to dwell in that heavenly realm. Okay. So for the last couple of weeks, I've been hinting at the fact that we're going to be embodied. I don't know if you picked up on that yet. Uh, subtle hints I've been given, but I think we're going to have a body in the afterlife, okay? And again, I think that we're going to be using that to serve the living God. We're going to be doing something. We're going to be ministry. We will have things to do in this glorified body. There'll be service as we are with God's celestial heavenly family, you know, of the sons of God, the the watchers, the ones that hadn't fallen, I think there's still, you know, God still has a council up there that I think, you know, everybody didn't fall. There's still the spiritual ones. Now, I'm sure, or maybe you're not aware, but some of you are probably aware that the preterist camp is divided on the issue of having a body after death. You aware of that? I know that's a shock, right? We're divided on something? Yeah, we're divided on everything, okay? But this is just another one of the divisions, all right? And so the, the preterists have come up with terms like this. 
CBV. All right, this, this is corporate body view. All right, I hold to the corporate body view. And then someone else say, well, I hold the IBD view, immortal body at death view. Okay? And so, of these two views, there's variations. Okay? <laughs> but the immortal body at death view believes that at death, you receive a body, an immortal body. That's what I believe. But most of those, and I say most because it's not all, most of those holding to the CBV view believe that we don't get a body at death. Okay? They see the body talked about in Scripture as the corporate body of Christ. I believe the Bible often uses body to refer to the corporate body of Christ, but I see the corporate body made up of individuals that have spirit bodies. So I guess you could say that I hold to both of these views. I'm a CBVer that believes you will be embodied, so that makes me an IBDer. So yeah, I'm both of them, okay? Yeah, I got it. I got that written out. I got that written out as we get to the end. I'll explain this. <laughs> but here's why. Because the Bible teaches both. You know, men make up systems and you, they want you to fit into a system. Well, sometimes those systems are right, but sometimes they're not. And usually if men make them, they're not right. Okay, so let's not try to get jammed into a system. Let's try to let the Bible tell us where we should go and what we should believe. And here's the thing. I don't think you have to pick one side or the other. Now, you do have to get on one side or the other about being embodied. Either get a body or I ain't got no body. Okay, you got to be on one of those sides. But you can believe you will be embodied and still believe in the corporate view of Scripture. Teaching through the book of Romans changed my thinking on many things. This, to me, is the wonder of verse-by-verse exposition. I deal with verses I don't want to deal with. I deal with texts I don't want to touch. But you're either going to be honest and try to deal with them or just skip them, you know, like some, you know. But I just believe that God wrote books and that's how we should go through. We should learn them that way, okay? So it's, it's been, it's taught me a lot. But one of the things that Romans taught me was give me an understanding of the Scriptures corporately. See, I, I think we have to learn to read the Bible from a corporate, not just an individual perspective, Because the biblical perspective is that every person is a member of a community. And that membership determines his or her identity. Please understand this. The corporate presupposes the individual. You can't have corporate without individuals. But you can have individuals without corporate. Okay? So, for those of you who are preterists, You know, if you can remember back, how grasping an understanding of audience relevance changed your view of Scripture? Well, I'm going to propose that grasping an understanding of the corporate nature of Scripture will have that same kind of effect. Notice what Paul writes to the Philippians, 127. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, the Greek words for manner of life here is the Greek word polichuomai. And the word polichuomai here is a verb, and it means to conduct oneself worthy as a citizen of a polis or a city-state. 
The Roman world had colonies like Philippi, which was a very, which really was a, just a small scale version of Rome. And to be a Roman citizen was the epitome of human dignity. Being a Roman citizen was very important in that day. During the great civil war, Octavian defeated Anthony, and after the battle, they, a number of soldiers were settled in Philippi, and the town became a Roman colony. Now, Philippi is 800 miles from Rome geographically, but it was very near in mindset and lifestyle. There was great pride in the fact that they were a polis, a city-state. It spoke of their protection, it spoke of their culture, their high esteem in the eyes of Rome. The Philippians thought of themselves as Romans. We see this in Acts 16 at the founding of the Philippian church. Acts 16.20 And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they're disrupting our city. Now, our city is Philippi. He says, They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept their practice. So they saw themselves as Romans. And it's important that we understand this. Rome was their mother, and they never forgot they belonged to her. They spoke the Latin language. They wore the Roman dress. They called their magistrates by Latin or Roman names. They were deeply into Roman citizenship and all that it meant. Well, what did it mean to be a Roman citizen? Well, I think it's hard for us to grasp today because I don't think that citizenship is all that big a deal to people today unless you came here from another country and had to work for it, okay? Because they just, we don't, it's not a big deal for us to be a citizen. But to the Greeks, the polis wasn't just a place to live. There was tremendous pride in it because the, the people viewed the polis as a partnership with other people to obtain the highest good for society. There is very little living for oneself the good of the polis was in the minds of the people. The individual citizens developed his ability, his talents, his skills, not for the sake, his own sake, but for the benefit of the community and for the sake of all. Pride of the state was an issue here. Now, in Philippians 3.20, Paul uses the noun form of polichuomai, and he tells the Philippians there to live as citizens of heaven. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Now, citizenship here is from the Greek poletiuma, and he is telling them to live for the good of the body of Christ and not for themselves. He's saying, use your talents, your abilities for the good of the Messianic community. We're to live as citizens of heaven using all our talents, all our abilities for the sake of the kingdom and not simply for ourselves. I really believe that if we had this kind of concept, the local church would be transformed. If believers thought about the needs of the body above their own needs. And when I say that, I think, okay, let me ask you, why do you come to church? Don't answer it out loud, of course, but, you know. And when you come up with reasons, do they revolve around you? Or is it for the benefit of the community? 
So you say, well, I come if I don't have anything else to do, but if I don't have anything to do, it's kind of cool to go and see what he'll talk about. Or do you consider the body and you say, look, I'm part of that body. If the whole body's not there, then a part's missing, so I'm part of that body. I'm going to go and be there and add what I can to. Because see, when we come together, it's to minister to one another. You know, Paul says we are ministers of grace. You know, we all have unique abilities and we all have different personalities and we might just be what somebody else in the body needs that day because they're having a rough day and somebody needs to lift them up and encourage them and you might be that person, but if you're not there, then the body suffers. And that's this idea of, of seeing the corporate community as more important than individuality and what I want for myself, what I think I need. That's how they viewed it, corporately. Now, the importance of community in ancient Near Eastern thought and life and a corporate understanding of the nature of humanity provides, I think, an important perspective on the interpretation of Scripture. As an an individualistic reading of Paul has long been the overwhelming and dominant approach. It's only until recently with the appearance of the work of E.P. Sanders, and Sanders' work helped usher in a greater appreciation for the concept of covenant in Paul's thought, resulting in a far greater emphasis on corporate over against individual concerns, particularly concerning the relationship of Jew and Gentiles in the church. Now, the corporate perspective is widely accepted and may even be a consensus in New Testament scholars. And we need to recognize that Paul's thought was thoroughly covenantal. Paul was focused on the fulfillment of the covenant purposes of God in Christ and their consequences for Jews and Gentiles. Secondly, for Paul and virtually all Jews and even the non-Jews in the Mediterranean and Hellenistic culture of his time, the group was primary, the individual was secondary. I don't think that's true in our culture. Okay, I think everybody's individualistic, doing my own thing my own way for my own self. All right? Now, this is an essential point to grasp for interpretation of Paul in the New Testament, because modern Westerners tend to view social reality in the opposite way. The individual's primary, the group's secondary. So the individual is viewed as standing on his own, and the corporate concerns are subordinate to individual concerns. Now, Paul's and the culture's perspective was essentially corporate. The individual was not viewed as standing on his own, but seen embedded into the group to which he belonged. Corporate concerns generally took precedent over individual concerns, and when they didn't, it was viewed as wrong. Such corporate interest can be seen in Paul's primary concern for love and unity that's dominant in his letters. The Pauline corporate perspective found individual identity based on the group rather than vice versa. One of the big differences, I think, between IBD and CBV is that of getting this individual body in heaven. Because I said, I think it's most, it's not all, but because I'm, I'm, I'm in that group and I believe I'm going to get a body. Okay? But most of those holding CBV position believe that the script, when the Scriptures talk about the body in connection with the afterlife, it's with a corporate understanding. Body of Christ, body of Adam, not individuals, you get anything, okay? And I agree that often it is talking corporately. 
But this doesn't mean we're incorporeal in the afterlife. Because I spent the last couple of weeks trying to show you, apart from this view and apart from corporate, they talk about the bodies of the gods. Well, let's look at, let me just show you some of Paul's uses of body and see how this works out. Paul's first corporate use of body in, in Romans is found in Romans 6, and 6, 6. And he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now, the body of sin, what is Paul talking about here? See, most people read this and they go, that's my body. My body's a body of sin. Is it? Body is singular here. And also notice that it is the sin. It's the body of the sin. That's the same the sin that he talked about in chapter 5. And when Paul speaks of the body of sin, he's not writing with an individualistic Greek understanding of the spirit of man being polluted by the sinful body. See, the Greeks thought the body's sinful, spirit's good. He's talking, when he says body of sin here, he's talking about solidarity of mankind with Adam. The body of Adam was a body of sin. It was unredeemed. The unredeemed members of the human race formed this body of sin. So you're either in the body of Christ or you're in the body of Adam, which is a body of sin. And the picture is of a covenant community which is outside the kingdom of God. Conceptually, Paul thinks in corporate terms. The expression, the body of sin, occurs nowhere else in Scripture. So we need to determine its meaning from the context and the Hebraic understanding of body. The Jews, who have a strong sense of solidarity, normally use the term soma, body, when referring to a corporate reality. So Paul often called the church the body of what? The body of Christ. Okay, that's each believer. He says, now you are the body of Christ. You were in the body of sin. You were in the body of Adam. Now you've been redeemed. You're in the body of Christ. But I like what he says, and individually members of it. I think this is the problem with the corporate. The corporate seems to almost do away with individuality. Okay? We are a member of the corporate body of Christ. It doesn't say, and you are Christ's body absorbed into the Borg. No, that's not what's happening here. There's individuals. You're individually members of that. You're individually a member of the body of Christ. We each are individual members. When we come together, we're a corporate body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in you? Paul uses the plural to emphasize that the entire church community is God's temple. It's His dwelling on earth. You are the temple. Now, in 6, 19 20, he says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, is this referring to the corporate body of Christ or your individual bodies? Your body is a temple. What's the temple? Is it the corporate body or is it the individual body? Do this. Yes. Yes. Are you a temple of God? Yes. Your sacred space, the Spirit of God dwells within you. You are a temple. When we get together, are we a temple of God? Absolutely. God dwells in us. Okay? He says, glorify God in your body. 
the body of Christ should be glorifying God. The local assembly should be glorifying God. But you also should be glorifying God in your body. I don't think it has to be an either or. Your body refers to the body of believers. Paul's use of the singular form of body here may emphasize that each believer is a temple. And in this context, Paul focuses on individual believers instead of the entire church community. One is individual, the other is corporate. We are the temple of God, both corporately and individually. Now, with that as an introduction, let me get into the text today, all right? I'm just kidding. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 5. <laughs> no, <it's not. laughs> 2 Corinthians 5.1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Is Paul talking about our physical bodies and when we they're destroyed, we get spiritual bodies? Or is he talking about the covenants, using body to speak of the covenants? I spoke at a conference in Kansas City. Remember, Jeff? The Kansas City Conference? <laughs> one, one, yeah, that's why I brought, one of the speakers was William Bell. William Bell got up and taught on 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And he taught, this is corporate. It's not talking about individual bodies. This is talking about the corporate body. As soon as he was finished, we had a 10-minute break, Ed Stevens got up, taught on this exact same text, and said this text is about the human body. It has nothing to do with corporate. <laughs> and we're sitting there like, okay, this is good. You know, We get two different views. But the funny part was, Ed never referenced William at all. Never made a comment about what William says. He just went on and did it like, Doing the same text, I hope no one notices, you know. <laughs> but it, it was, I thought it was interesting because you're, you're hearing both perspectives there. And listen, this text has, is a battleground, all right? 2 Corinthians 5 is a battleground to people, all right? Because if you read this text, what do you think it's talking about? It sure sounds like the body to me, okay? It sounds like, you know, if our body dies, guess what? We get a new one. It's okay. It's cool. All right. We're good, right? Same exact text, two different views, so which is it? Well, Ed Stevens writes this. In verse 1, he says that if his earthly tent, and he says, this is Ed in quotes, physical body. So Ed says your tent is your physical body. Was torn down, and he has killed there. As a martyr, in persecution. It was not a problem, because he knew there was another eternal body waiting for him in the heavens. The words torn down here, and verse 1 implied being killed by others, martyrdom, not dying a natural death. I don't, I haven't a clue how he came up with that, okay? I don't, I mean, and I haven't really read his literature, to be fair, so I don't know what, it, but I'm saying exegetically. I don't know how he came up with that. Okay, but, so Ed translates tent as earthly body. I don't have a problem with that. The Greek here is the noun skenos. Skenos is only used here in verse 4 of the same chapter. But Peter uses the word skenoma to talk about a physical body. 2 Peter 1, 13 and 14. I think it right, he says, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Yeshua the Christ made it clear to me. So 
Okay, there's no, no real controversy here. Peter's talking about dying, okay? He's dying. And body here is the Greek term skenoma. It's related to skenos. So this is the term in Greek that is used to translate the term tabernacle in the Septuagint, which I think that's fascinating, okay? Because Peter uses this tent, this idea of tabernacle. Tent is, gives us that same idea. So Peter sees his body as being a tabernacle or a temple because the Spirit of God is dwelling in him, all right? So Paul could be using tent here to refer to the physical body. Not a problem there. Ed goes on, Ed says this, the word torn down here in verse 1, being implied being killed by others, martyrdom, not dying a natural death. All right, the word destroyed here in my text is torn down in other versions. It's from the Greek kataluo. Let me just show you a few uses of kataluo and see if you get killed by martyrdom out of any of these, okay? Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. The word here, abolish, is kataluo. All right? Matthew uses kataluo what? Of removing the old covenant. Let's go to Matthew 24. But he answered them, You see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. All right, again, Katalua. What's being thrown down? The Jewish temple. The law. The old covenant. So the word Katalua is used 16 times in the New Testament. Ten of them clearly refer to the Jewish temple. This word is never used of physical death. Nonetheless, Ed's right, and it's used here of physical death, what seems strange. All right? So here's my question. Is Paul, or the Spirit of God who inspired Paul, trying to confuse us? I mean, if this text is talking about physical death, which tent could be, then why does he use this word that's so often connected with the temple? It's like, are we talking physical body? Are we talking corporate here? The word building, from the Greek word oikodome, it's used several times for the Jewish temple. It's also used for the body of Christ. It is never used of an individual body, earthly or heavenly. So why does Paul use these words if he's not talking about the destruction of the Old Covenant? I don't get it. It just seems confusing. Like, which way do we go here? Then Paul says, we have. We have. This is a present, active, indicative, which means right now we got it. They already have a house not made with hands. This is written around AD 55. So there's two houses existing at the same time. The earthly tent and an eternal house not made with hands. Now, does that fit the physical body? Do we have a physical body already in heaven? It's hanging in the closet waiting for us to jump into it? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. But this certainly fits the transition period where the Old Covenant and the New Covenant were together for 40 years. One fading out, one coming in. So can these houses be two bodies, physical and spiritual? Now, it's my opinion that this text leans strongly to the corporate side of the argument. 
The context of chapter 5 is covenantal. And context is king when it comes to interpretation. So let's back up and look at the context because, you know, we didn't, he, Paul didn't start with 5. He had some other chapters, you know, like 1 through 4 before 5. All right, so let's go to 3. No, I'm going the wrong way here. Push the right button. No. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 3, 6. Who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. We know what that is. Not of the letter. The letter is what? The old covenant. Written in stone. But of the Spirit. That's the new covenant. For the letter kills. That's the old covenant. But the Spirit gives life. He's making a comparison to the old and new covenants. All right, look at verse 9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation. That's what he calls the old covenant. The ministry of condemnation. Then the ministry of righteousness, that's the new covenant, must far exceed it. So it should be clear that Paul is contrasting covenants, old and new. Old kills, old condemns, and therefore they groan. Verse 11. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, that's the old covenant. It's being brought to an end in his time. Much more will what is permanent have glory. Um, that could refer to a physical body, right? I mean, a physical body brought to an end. We got something more permanent. It's an eternal spirit. But again, we're in context here is covenants. Let's look at chapter 4, 410. Always carrying in the body the death of, of Yeshua so that the life of Yeshua may be manifest in our bodies. Now, body here in both uses is singular. He's not talking about plural bodies. The hour is plural. The body is singular. Paul's been talking about covenants. And I think now he's using body to refer to the covenants. I don't think he switched topics to physical, biological bodies. I think he's still talking about covenants. Let's go on to 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. All right, so Paul says the outer man is decaying. That's what he said in 3.11. And we're not to look at things seen. And again, this is the old covenant. You could see it. The temple, the priesthood, the sacrifice, the feast days. He says they were temporal. We're to look at things that are not seen, which should be the new covenant, which is eternal. Now, from this context, in chapter 3 and 4, of contrasting covenants, we move into 5, where the subject seems to still be the contrast of covenants, not biological bodies. So, in my opinion, the argument is much stronger for a corporate view of this text. But... All my friends have big butts, okay? But, okay, having a corporate body does not exclude an individual body, all right? And see, because this text, they see it leaning to corporate, they say, we don't get a body. It doesn't exclude, it doesn't talk about that. It's talking about a corporate body. It doesn't mean you don't get an individual. We've used other scriptures and tried to prove to you that we're getting, get a body. Just because this text doesn't talk about it doesn't mean that. Let me ask you this. 
This is a, a little quiz here for you. See if you're paying attention. If you're part of a student body, we've heard of student body, right? Made up of students, right? And the student body gets locked out of the school, where are you? You're locked out of the school, right? Because the student body got locked out. You're part of that body. You don't get in. You're locked out. You're part of it. Okay, we got to think that way. We got to understand corporate, part of the corporate. You're locked out of the school. The language in this text does not exclude an individual body. On the opposite, I think it affirms it because you can't have a corporate without individual. Corporate what? It's made up of some. A student body is made up of students. If you don't have students, do you have a student body? No, you got nothing. Okay, I don't care how many students it takes to make up the student body, but there has to be several of them, okay? Or else it's just a person. So we saw that tent can be used of a corporate or an individual body. I mean, it seems that it really can go either way. And the word kataluo, destroyed, is most often used of the temple, but let me throw this in there. Our body is a temple. So maybe, and the word, the Greek word for building here, oikodome, is used several times in the temple, and it's also used for the body of Christ. We're a temple, and we're part of the body of Christ. Here's what I want to present to you. Maybe both sides of the argument are right. Maybe this text was written by Paul through the Spirit in such a way to include both views. I mean, the language here, you have to scratch your head and think. He doesn't lean one side or the other to, to make it so clear. Like I said, the average person picking up their Bible, reading this text, thinks it's a body, this body, physical body. They would never even consider corporate unless they've been trained and had some study and done some research, done some digging, okay? So why would this text go back and forth like that? Why could it fit this and fit that? Both sides use this text to point to their arguments and say, I'm right because of 2 Corinthians 5. Even if you take it strictly corporate, the Bible speaks elsewhere being embodied, so it doesn't exclude it, okay? So you can see this as corporate and still believe we will be embodied. So I don't think we need to be arguing about corporate or individual. You've got to take each text, and the 1 Corinthians 15 to me is the same as this. You could take it as physical, you could take it corporate. They go back and forth, I think for a reason. And what's funny, last night, I did a podcast with Mike Sullivan, and before the podcast we were talking, and I was bouncing some of this stuff off him. He goes, yeah, I, I think that same, I know Mike holds to a corporate body view, but he also believes you get a body. And we were talking about this text, he goes, yeah, I, I think kind of both are in there. I'm like, wow, that's cool, because I, I didn't know anybody else thought that, but yeah, I think they're both in there too. I just, it's so weird that it's worded this way, and that's for a reason. Look, people, the Word of God is beyond what we'll ever understand totally and completely. It's amazing. Each and every one of us are temples in which Yahweh dwells. We are sacred space. And together, as we get together as the corporate body of Christ, we are the temple of God. And as I said earlier, most CBV guys don't believe we're going to have a body because they see this reference to the body as corporate. So they just kind of do away with the concept. Okay, it's all corporate. And I was, what is that? So when you die, what are you? A mist? 
You're just floating around. How do you even know you are? How does anybody see you? How does anybody rec- well, mist can recognize mist? Or you just, I don't know. It's hard to get my head around that because I don't see it in Scripture, okay? Yeshua said, we're going to be like the angels. Angels have bodies. God has a body. Daniel said it. Yahweh said it. Yeshua said it. Paul said it. We're going to have bodies. And the court review doesn't exclude that. Believers individually and corporately are a temple of the living God. So, I'm CBV and I'm IBD. I'm corporate body, individual body at death. I'm CBIBD. <laughs> Starting a new one, okay? <laughs> I'm that too, but <laughs> CBIBD. Okay, so when people ask you, are you CBV or IBD? Say, I'm CBIBD. Elemental P, okay? Just throw a bunch of th- things in there, okay? I've said, I've said this for years. When asked about this, these two views, I've said, I hold a hybrid view, okay? Because I believe in the corporate. The corporate is clearly laid out in Scripture. There's so many texts that are, it's clearly corporate. But there's so much evidence of having a body also, so you can't do that. Okay, now listen. I hold a hybrid view. Hybrid humans created by the gods mating with women is sin. But a hybrid view of CBD, IBD is not. Okay? It's just not. All right? You don't have to fall into one of these camps or you're wrong. All right? That's, again, anytime a man makes a system, be cautious. All right? I, I think put them together and you got a good picture of what's going on in the Scripture. All right. With that, we end our three-part series on... The afterlife, okay? So, sorry I didn't give you more, but there's not more in there. (laughs) I'd love to give you more. There's a lot of things you just have to think about. But I'll tell you, it's fun to think about it. And it's fun to, you know, again, we go back to the Garden of Eden when God brought man in there. Here's a job. I want you to tend this. I want you to keep it. I want you to do something. Don't just sit around, you know, eating apples. You know, do something, okay? Why? Because that's, that's how we're made. And I think we're happiest when we actually have a mission in carrying it out. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. Lord, there's so much there. So much we have to learn. Help us, Father, never to dig our heels in and think we know it all. May we ever be learning, Father. I pray that we always be students of the word of God seeking to learn, seeking to grow, seeking to understand. Thank you, Father, for your constant grace to us, your patience with us. Amen. All right. Questions, comments? Gary. Um, God has feet. Does he also have wings? (laughs) There's no indication of God having wings. All angels don't have wings. Okay? They don't, I mean... At Sodom and Gomorrah, when the angels showed up there, nobody had wings, okay? There are certain classes, there's different classes of angels, okay? You got cherub, throne room guardians, you have different classes, and some of them have wings. Why? I don't know. They seem to get along just fine without wings, so I don't, I don't understand that, you know? But some of them are depicted with wings, some are not. 
They're all depicted as someone you don't mess with, okay? Because their their bodies can do things that ours can't, and you definitely lose in a fight with them. Okay, remind me that, Jeff, before we close here. Whoa. Anthropomorphism, if that's the right word. Yeah, yeah I, I know people will do that, and I'm wondering, is it an anthropomorphism, or is it just, you know, that's the, an anthropomorphism is describing the parts of a man to God, okay? And I think that comes from more the view that God's a spirit, and he didn't have any of these things. Well, I don't know. Are they just anthropomorphism in the sense they're trying to help us understand, but we're made in the image and likeness of God. You know? Why didn't he say, God made him and there's nothing like him, but here's what he did. <laughs> okay? So David, this is from Norm. If the plan is to unite, or rather reunite, God and man, and that we rule with him as members of the divine council, does that mean that my father knows what a sinful son he has? Yes, he does know that, Norm. He's always known that. And, uh, oh yeah, let me... Norm and I were communicating back and forth this week, and he brought something up that I thought was interesting. Talking about sin in heaven that we talked about last week. You know, will, we, will God make us sinless so we can't sin in heaven? Let's say we are made sinless. We get to heaven, we're made sinless. How does God display His grace and His mercy in heaven to us? Huh? We're there. You're right. We are there. But I mean, uh, so do these attributes of God just fade away and they're not needed anymore? Or I, I don't know. I, I mean, I thought that Norm brought that up and I thought that's a good, that's a good thought. The angels, right, is grace to us. I mean, so there will still be uh, dogs outside of the heaven, right? I mean, explaining his grace to them. Peter, uh, this is from Bill Evans. Uh, I think there's a couple of them, but they seem to be the same. Uh, Peter describes us as living stones. Mm, Bill, I'd have a problem with that. He doesn't describe us as that. He describes the transition saints as that. Okay. They're living stones being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. We're, God dwells in the house. The house got finished in AD 70 and God moved in. He, but he said, this confirms the CBD and the I and V are both true. Um, <clears throat> well, I think they are both true. I mean, that's what I said. I don't, I don't think we have to, have to pick one or other. The Bible talks corporately about things, but it also talks individually about things. Uh, who is this from? Oh, this is from Jill. She says, oh, how I long to be able to connect to the corporate body and be able to serve and encourage my fellow members. I found such a fulfillment in the past being connected to a church community. It's difficult to... Now, she's one of our online members. Okay, she's watching. So she doesn't have what we have here, each other. It's difficult to assemble to assemble with the body who consider one a heretic for believing the preterist view. And so 
you know, some of us don't know this conflict that these people who watch us have. They would like to be part of a local church. And I encourage everybody, if you can be, be part of it. I could not sit in a church. I mean, I'm way too critical, okay? Every time, I mean, that text doesn't say that. that that's not what that text means at all, you know? This last week, I was listening to a, a video. Ken Hovid, is that his name? The, the creation life guy? He's an expert in Scripture, and he's going on and on, and, and he's talking about this, and he goes, and he says, I forget what the, even the subject was, but he's talking about Timothy. And he goes, yeah, Timothy even ended up writing two books of the Bible. And I thought, what books did Timothy write? <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute. I, I, I'm just hoping this was a slip, because I was like, Timothy wrote some books? Well, oh, first and second Timothy? You mean that Paul wrote two Timothy? See, getting a book written to you is not writing a book, okay? So I was just a little bit confused there, but that, that's what we have to deal with. And I mean, if you're, most churches today focus more on the devil than on the Lord. So the devil, 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 and, and they're, the second coming is so prompt. It's just hard to sit there. Every song you sing, the Lord's coming in the gods, you know? So it, so it is difficult. She says, I'd never wanted to be an online churchgoer, but I'm so grateful that I'm able to gather with you every Sunday. Wish I could be there in person. In some sense, the chat room gives us the opportunity to serve and encourage one another, even though we can't gather physically. Thank you again for the bot- from the bottom of my heart for providing us this opportunity for us heretics. Jill. Jill, you, you, are, you are so welcome. And, you know, we were talking about, I did it, like I said, I did a podcast last night, and they were saying, the guy who was introducing me was, I felt I was at my funeral because he's saying all these good things about me, you know. <laughs> so did I die and I didn't know it or something, you know. But, but he said, you know, one of the things he said is, he said, Dave Curtis started a virtual church before it was popular, you know, way back before COVID and all this. And I said, wait a minute, Dave Curtis had nothing to do with that, okay. I didn't, okay. This is all Garrett and, you know, people, other people saying, we got to do this, we got to do that. Because I'm like, I just want to teach the Bible, okay. Everything else is them. And I just thank God for people that he brings into your life to get things done. You know, I don't know anything about websites. I I can find them most of the time. Sometimes I can't even do that. But Jeff does all that stuff. You know, and Garrett makes the online stuff. So all these people come together, and and it's just people love this ministry. And it is amazing. You know, and they were talking about me writing a book last night. And they said, and Mike said, he doesn't need to write a book. He's got commentaries on, you know, on all the books almost online. And they are up there, you know, but again, that's, that's not me. And I just, you know, I appreciate the, the people that surround us that get things done. And again, that's the, that's the functioning of the body of Christ. That's being, you know, doing what you're called to do in the body. And some of us, yes, have more prominent things that if you don't show up, we're in trouble. If Jeremy doesn't show up, what do we do? We don't sing, okay? Or, or we, you know, we try to do acapella and it doesn't. Especially if Kathy's gone, we're in big trouble. You and Jeremy are not allowed to ever leave at the same time, okay? (laughs) So some are much more visible than others, but I want you to understand that every member is important because, like I said, we, we have individual perspective, individual personalities that can minister to somebody who needs it at that moment. Only if we're there. Uh, I don't know who this is from, but I, 
They say, I remember debating predestination with the minister years ago. He insisted that election was corporate, not individual. I agreed, but asked him if the corporate was composed of individuals. He scratched his head. Again, that, that's that whole argument, you know. Well, God doesn't choose individuals. He chooses a whole bunch. Okay, am I one of that bunch of the whole, you know? Because that's cool with me then. I'm, I'm part of the group. That's what matters, you know. CBIBD, love it. <laughs> that's for John. Thanks, John. Um, where does the where does the story of Saul calling up Samuel fit in? I'm not. I, I, I'm not sure where it fits in. I mean, I I have no problem with it. when she called him up. She goes, oh, "I see a wisp," and it, it, I think this smells like Sam. No, she says, "I see a man in it." Ah, oh, it's Samuel! She screams. She's shocked. She didn't expect that. Yes, he had clothes on, he had a body, and it's like, it's Samuel. He's dead. He's called Elohim. Why? Because he's of that other realm. See, the only people called Elohim are people of that realm. And dead people, believers, when they get that, they're Elohim. Okay? Another focusing on that. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but he was called up. And when he was called up, There he was, in a body. <laughs> yeah, he wouldn't have been, he hadn't, he hadn't had the resurrection yet, so I guess it was just his old body, but it showed up. But it's kind of, anyway, it's, it's weird because he's called Elohim, so he's of the other realm, even though he's not there yet. If angels do not marry, why did you say that angels married women and had offspring? Because they did. Genesis chapter 6. Go read it. We talked about that in the last couple of weeks. It says the angel in heaven, you won't marry or be given in marriage. You'll be like the angels. And technically, Genesis 6 is they're sons of God. Now, is this a different class? Marriage is not for heaven, basically, is what it's saying. Okay, they left heaven, came down to earth, and married women. Now, I know that's, wow, that's hard to grasp. It's what the text says. Now, people have tried to get around it, but if you understand the divine counsel viewpoint, it's not that hard. Okay? I think he would probably look at that verse too much and say angels can't marry or can't have sex. Therefore, that can't be true. They couldn't appropriate it because the woman would be like angels, or angels can't have marriage. Therefore, they can't have sex. Right. Ever. doesn't mean they can't. It's just in heaven they don't. Okay? I mean, Genesis, you know, people, oh, this is too weird. People, God's coming down and having children. Yeshua? God had a child? Yeshua? I don't know. I think about it, people. Where can we find your podcast with Brother Mike? That's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> Again, I'm not that technical. I just show up and, you know, I had the hardest time getting on Skype so they could even, I could even be part of it because I'm, anyway, <clears throat> um, you could, you could find out from Mike. If I find out, I'll, I'll let you all know, but I know, it, I know they put him on Rumble. It's called 
God in Politics is the name of it. So if I think if you go to Rumble, I don't know when they're putting it up, but if you go to Rumble and put in God in Politics, uh, you should be able to find it. Sandra from California. Sandra, how are you, girl? I haven't seen you in a long time. Jesus says, I will destroy this temple and raise it in three days. Was Jesus referring to the physical body or the corporate body? Mark 14.58 says, We heard him say, I destroy this temple that God made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. That's a good point, Sandra. We always take that as he's referring to his body, but he was going to raise up a spiritual body, a corporate body for sure, to be the new and living temple. Good thinking, Sandra. Outside the box. I'm sorry I don't see 1 Corinthians 15 as resurrection of us into heaven. I see it as being born again. Paul quotes Hosea 6.13. Okay, you know, that's fine. I I don't know how in the world you come up with that, but um, guess what? Everyone's allowed to believe whatever they want. Huh? It's up? Okay, it is up on Rumble, Jeff said. Talking God and politics with Mark and Mike. And okay, Talking Politics with Mark and Mike. You'll find it. Remember, Paul said they would be caught up in the twinkling of an eye, so we will get a new kind of body. Yeah, we, we will get a new kind of body, and we'll be changed. You know, when we leave this realm, boom. Heiser speaks of the three rebellions, Eden, Genesis, and the Tower of Babel. I think that in heaven, there will be no sin, rebellion. That's fine. Again, I'm not saying this is what the Bible says. I am speculating uh, because I just, from what, as a preterist, we believe prophecies fulfilled. Okay? We are like Christ now in the sense we share His righteousness. So is there another work that's going to happen when we get to heaven? If I share Christ's righteousness right now, if I'm in union with Christ right now, if I share all He is and has right now, why do I still sin? And what will happen right before you get to, at the gates, the pearly gates? There's Peter. St. Peter's always at the gates. I don't know how he got stuck at the gatekeeper, but he's there, and he's got a little thing that does, does a synectomy. And he sticks it in you, and you get a synectomy, and then you can go in. Again, I'm, you know... <laughs> Do you all do Wednesday nights also? We do Wednesday nights, but not here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Wednesday, Wednesdays is an individual meeting, not corporate. Okay. Sorry, answer that question. No. I'm sorry. We, this church has a predominance of smart Alex, okay? I, I don't know if that's the... I think that seems to be the predominant spiritual gift of this congregation, okay? Men anyways. Men anyways. <laughs> yes. And one day, my goal, Lord willing, is to start home studies or use my business as a place to gather together. Colorado Springs area. Love you all. Thank you for all you do. We wouldn't be who we are as a family without you and all your teachings. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And, and yeah, please, listen, you people who are alone out there, you don't have fellowship, seek it. Go. You know, you don't have to go to a church, start a church. And what I mean by that is 
invite someone to your house on Sunday morning and watch us together. I know many people that do that. Okay, they invite someone to their house, they sit there and watch us together. They, and then they can ask questions or they can talk among themselves. But you're with somebody else, you're, you're around other believers, and that's, that's so important. And I know the difficulty of going to the church today because of the way the church is. Okay, First of all, you better chain your wallet up because they're going to do everything they can to part you from your money as soon as you walk through the door. And then you're going to hear a lot about Satan and a lot about Satan coming. So I understand that. But I, I believe if you can go, I just think it's important to be with other Christians face-to-face, people you can get close to. And if you get close enough to start sharing, then you probably get the right foot of fellowship. Okay? That, that happens a lot, all right? If Christ ever lives to make intercession for us, does this imply future sin in heaven? <laughs> maybe, I guess, yeah, maybe he has to stop praying once we get to heaven. I, you know, again, there, there's a lot. Of, and this is speculation, people. And, and I know it upset people like, I thought I'd be done with sin. You can be done with sin now. Okay? I mean, seriously, you can be done with sin now. We're called to live holy lives. Yes, it takes a lot, okay? It takes, you know, maybe you shouldn't spend two hours watching TV and you should spend two hours memorizing your Bible. I'm serious. There's, there's work to be put in here if you want to be who God wants you to be. It's spending time in the Word of God. It's allowing Him to teach you and form you and mold you. And not watch the Spirit. Yes, go, go, go back and look at our study in 1 John. Talk about abiding in Christ. To abide in Him is just a special place. But it, it, you know, we're always tempted, but you can't say no, okay? Luther, I think one of the reformers used to teach, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head. You can't keep these thoughts from coming in. He said, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. So don't dwell on those thoughts. Get, let them go and get rid of them and focus on Christ. I like to memorize Scripture where you have a temptation, okay? If you certain area, mem- there's Scripture about it. Memorize the Scripture. When you're tempted, quote the Scripture, okay? It's helpful. Get in the Word of God. I think we're just too lazy now. You know, the, the Hebrew children, by the time they're 12, have the, tanat, the Torah memorized. Memorized. A working knowledge of it. Where's the talk about birds? They can pull up, tell you where it talks about birds. Okay, by the time they're 12. But we're too, Scripture memory is hard and we're lazy. So that's why, you know, we want some miracle. God, get rid of sin for us and we'll just be perfect. And we don't want to have to work at it. Gary? I guess they did, um, yes, it, they, they memorized all of it. I mean, Christ died for our sins forever. We're washed cleansed from sin, so that would be the sins that we ever create, commit even in eternity. I'm sorry, I was reading this. Say that again. So Christ died for our sins once and for all. So even the sins that we might create. Every sin forever. Every eternity forever. You know, we'd be in trouble if he didn't. Yeah. You know, oh, I just ran out of all he paid for. Now I'm in trouble. Okay, so yeah, <clears throat> not a good place to be. Did you read Dana's second question? Uh, I don't know if I got one. Oh well, okay. The second one, the first one is something we talked to Jeff about later, but I agree. We still enjoy that one. 
Thank you for Berean Live. Love Walter and Connie. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you joining with us. Appreciate you watching. Um, I agree. So we enjoy our corporate worship and discussing the message over lunch every week. The San Marcos Satellite Church. Amen. Well, cool. Thanks. Thanks for getting together and, you know. There are predators in Colorado Springs. Cool. All right. Yes, there's predators everywhere. We just need to figure out how to get together. Like I said, all right, let me tell you a story before we, before we end here. Friends of ours, Kathy and I's best friends, Rob and Cindy, they moved to Arkansas. Lord help them. But their daughter moved there, so they moved there to be with their daughter, okay? Um, they weren't really strong preterists. And they knew Kathy and I, and they kind of put up with me because they've, they, they've known me all my life for a long, long time. You know, they know me a long, long time. Uh, Rob and I both visited a church in this area together. He was from Meadville. I'm from Erie. That's 40 miles apart. Um, I visited the church. He visited the church. I welcomed him. He thought I was a greeter. I'm like, I'm visiting like you, you know. And so we just, from that, we just hit it off. We became instant friends. Their kids grew up with our kids. Um, well, they're in Arkansas and he knew we were predators, but he wasn't much into, they weren't that much into it until COVID. And then they started watching us and, they became preterists, and they're like, ah, we can't go to church now. We don't like it anymore. <laughs> when church came back, they didn't, we don't like going there, you know, so what do we do? So they decided to reach out, and they met a couple at a political meeting, and they had lunch with them, and they gave them Glen Hill's book, and they shared with them, and they invited them to their house, and now they come together every week, and they meet, and they share. They share, you know, they have coffee, and they watch us, and they talk about it, and that's what it's all about, people. Just put a little bit of effort in. There's other people out there. They may not know this, but if they're open... They might. Now, you might risk being called a heretic and being shunned by that. That's part of it. You've got to be willing to deal with that because that could happen. But you've got to take some risks. Uh, I, think there's, I think there's a lot of people out there that are interested in the teaching of the Bible. They just never heard it. You know, they just never heard it. Like I, one of the guys I listened to, he says he's a Christian anyway. He's a young Christian if he is. But Hovid was in this tape was talking about tattoos and tattoos are sin and you shouldn't get a tattoo and so this guy was freaking out because he's covered with tattoos you know and he's like oh my word I didn't know any better and I, I want to get a hold and say look chill the first question I would ask him when's the last time you took a sacrifice to the temple uh, I never have why well the Bible commands it well, why don't you do that we're not under the old covenant that is done that is Christ finished that we're under the law of Christ the law of Christ is laid out in the New Testament. It has nothing to do with tattoos, putting marks. Those things were for Israel, part of the Old Covenant law. Boy, if people could make a distinction, it would free them, okay? It would free them. You know, you know what the Lord said? Here's what's important. Love God, love your neighbor. That's simple. Go do that. <laughs> That'll keep you busy for the rest of your life, okay? <laughs>